This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a 3RRR film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Cordwell and I'm joined by Cerise Howard, Stuart Richards and Sally Christie. Good evening all. Good evening, Thomas. Hello there. Hello. Hey. Hi. We've got a good show tonight. We're going to take a look. We always do, but tonight, really good. We are, Make sure you stick to the very end. We are taking a look at Creed 2, the sequel to the popular and well-received Rocky spin-off film from a few years back. And also, sorry to bother you, a social satire combining elements of science fiction and comedy and the filmmaking debut of rapper Boots Riley. Uh, both films have a few elements in common, uh, which we probably will discuss at some point, and they both feature Tessa Thompson, who plays the girlfriend of the protagonists in both films. I'm sure we'll discuss how that works out in both films as well. I was like, where is Tessa Thompson and Lean on Pete? <laughs> I know. I, I, I wish you had a cameo in Lean on Pete because that would have been a perfect segue, wouldn't it? <laughs> no, she has nothing to do with the first film we're going to talk about tonight. Um, Lean on Pete is the latest film by English filmmaker Andrew Haig, whose previous two films, Weekend and 45 Years, were both covered uh, very favourably on this show back in Feb 2012 and Feb 2016, respectively. It's an adaptation of the 2010 novel by American author Willie Vlauten, and while the film is a British production, it is very much an American story set in the outskirts of Portland, Oregon. It stars emerging actor Charlie Plummer as Charlie, a 15-year-old boy with limited options, living with his well-meaning but somewhat deadbeat father. When Charlie gets a job with a horse trainer, played by Steve Buscemi, he becomes attached to a horse named Lean on Pete. Um, becoming very protective of Lean on Pete. While his own personal circumstances get progressively worse, Charlie finds himself becoming increasingly desperate. Who wants to jump in first and lean on Lean on Pete? Theresa's nodding at Who me. wants to lean into <laughs> Lean on Pete is the bad pun I was going for there. Um, Look, I'll go. Oh, uh, so... <laughs> I'm glad we talked about that beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Smooth. I love Andrew Hayes' work. Yeah. Uh, I think Weekend is a brilliant film. I really enjoyed uh, his work on the television show Looking as well, set in San Francisco. Uh, yeah, this one, it's a very, it's a very, very slow film, uh, but I, in, I don't think that slowness is necessarily a criticism. Of the of the film at all, um, I think the the slow and meandering nature of the film is really really important because when those bursts of violence kick out, they are really visceral and you really feel them. Uh, so there's a really kind of nice kind of steady slowness to the film, and then bam, there's violence. Um, yeah, I want to hear what others think because I finished this film knowing that a lot of people were talking about how emotional they were after seeing it and I didn't feel a whole lot. So maybe I'm dead inside. Well, I'm happy to jump in because mm. I, I was quite in a trance while watching this film. I was a, this, and this is the kind of film where uh, film, pro, uh, film festival program guides often refer to it as meditative to try to mm. dissuade people of a certain preference who, who don't like slow films like this. And I was sitting next to somebody who was intensely irritated and fidgety, like really wasn't engaging at all. And I, I was very conscious of how I was lulled into this film. Um, it, uh, there are just some films that have this kind of slow pace which 
bore me senseless and I think an Emperor's New Clothes type syndrome. You know, the slow cinema movement I think has produced a lot of wank. But I, I think with, with, with this film there was something so uh, engaging and beautiful about it and just that quiet despair, just this... Mm. This boy who things just keep going, going worse, and not in a melodramatic way either, but in, in a very recognisable and believable way. Um, and I was just really invested in seeing where this story goes, and I love where it does go. Ultimately, I think mm. we deserve it. We deserved how it ended, and. Yeah. The other thing I found really curious about this is the relationship with the horse. Now, I, I used to program films for young people and kids bonding with animals to replace an absent parent through death or divorce is a massive theme in cinema aimed at kids and teenagers. Uh, Germans actually love love a good horse film. Um, <laughs> bird films are really popular in a lot of Asian countries and it just became a joke. And and it suddenly occurred to me this is one of those films a kid with parental absence bonding with a horse but it follows none of the cliches it falls into none of the melodramatic traps in fact there's something a bit almost depressingly realistic about the fact he doesn't have a magical bond with the horse the horse doesn't talk to him he's not that great at taking care of the horse and so Mm. that kind of sort of slow mesmerising feel with what I think was a fairly realistic portrayal of the scenario really won me over. And and while the film didn't have a huge impact on me at the time, I'm still thinking about it now. Mm. I um, went into watching Lena on Pete with no context. I hadn't read anything about it. And I was really emotionally unprepared for it. I came away feeling that I'd really been put through the ringer. It was a really beautiful movie. One thing that I particularly loved about it was how it felt super, super intimate, but it had it commented on these bigger... Um, you know, issues that we have of people that are marginalised in society and people that slip through the cracks, even though it was this really intimate portrayal of, you know, a boy and his horse. And another thing that I thought was just stunning about it was the way that he does have that connection with the horse and that how as humans we do have deep connections with animals and, you know, through joy and grief that they're there and, you know, they're really important parts of our lives. Um, I also thought that the way that Andrew Haig had captured the American landscape was phenomenal, especially for, you know, a filmmaker that isn't American. Maybe it was those fresh eyes, but, yeah, just beautiful. There is something about that outsider observation that can be quite magical, Mm. yeah. I don't think this film was that slow. I don't think Mm. it was either. I I don't find it slow at all. It wasn't a film of long takes. It was more meditative. Yeah, it was a gentle (laughs) pace, but this wasn't Bella Tarr. We're not talking seven hours of satin tango and people... Uh, peeling potatoes for minutes at a time. No, you're right. Um, I think I think me describing yeah. it as slow as being reactionary to some other comments. So yeah. you're right. But that was a Turin horse, a horsey film that was genuinely very, very, very slow. And I adored that film. All yeah. four hours of it. It was a torment for many. I expect. <laughs> but already I'm digressing. I think this this is actually a really lovely film, and the pace is gentle, but it's the right pace for this film. It it earns its emotional impact. If you feel it, if you're not dead inside, Stuart. In <laughs> <laughs> um, terms of, I mean, I, I didn't feel any Britishness in this film, which is interesting. It, 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 we know that it's a BFI-funded film. There's English lottery money in it, uh, English director. The setting is extremely American, but then it could have been transplanted anywhere. And there was a British film, at least one that it did remind me of, which was Cleo Barnard's The Selfish Giant where kids end up working for a scrap dealer, so a weird father figure, a uh, proxy father figure, and there's a horse involved. There was horse racing in that as well, off-road, quite Yeah, there scary. was, wasn't there, yeah. It was all in an underclass milieu like this is as well. Yep. 
um, different. And if anything, that film is a little bit tougher, I think, than this one. But this one still has a couple of real sucker punches in it, um, which yeah, I felt a little winded a couple of times during this film. But I think it's gorgeous. Uh, the, the kid, uh, Christopher. Not Christopher Plummer. No, Charlie, yeah. Charlie Plummer. Charlie Plummer. I, I keep reading it that yeah. way as well. Yeah, okay. Charlie Plummer. No relation? No relation? We don't think so. We haven't looked, have we? I don't. None of us. No, 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 I didn't even think to look at that. Yeah. I don't believe so. But The kid's good. Very promising yep. future. The, the cast, uh, some pretty interesting actors and little roles. I didn't expect... This, this doesn't strike me as a classic Steve Buscemi or Chloe Savini film, and yet there they are. Very, and Steve Zahn. And Steve Zahn. It's like yeah. these great people of the ninth. The indie 90s. 90s, yeah, mm, character yeah. actors from the 90s in a film uh, by a British filmmaker working in Portland, Oregon uh, and traipsing across borders as well. Uh, and they even did get a little bit of a Western vibe towards the, the second half of the mm. film. I got a nice little bit of a... Um, uh, an, old, an old-fashioned Western... Crossing, crossing territories, a journey, a quest... Um, it's a road movie. It is. It is a road movie. It, there's, there's a few things in the mix. I feel there's sort of a, mm. there's a quest for civilization in the second half, isn't there? Because he, he goes quite to the fringes of society and the country. And yeah. then it's, is he going to find his way back to something tangible and into some certain quintessential American characters of the mm. current day? Not perhaps of the, the old West, but of the the, the current day West. It, it's still, yeah. It feels like there's a lot in the the generic soup here. If you know what I mean. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that it's a it's a surprisingly complex film absolutely and i mean and the other thing that's remarkable is it looks so incredibly naturalistic but there's at least one moment in there which had to be done with very sophisticated digital technologies because yes, yes. they couldn't have done that moment for real <laughs> yes well i was looking for a certain disclaimer you expect to see yeah. at the end of films and it wasn't actually there but Ooh. i did notice that there was the presence of animators and uh, digital artists yeah uh, but it's, it's yes. seamless and yes. it has a, yeah, a big yeah. a big impact it hurts yes mm. Mm. it is a very beautifully made film there's a lot of really great hard lighting uh, sort of at, uh, at, at during night scenes. There's a lot of great sound bridges as well where the sound sort of melds over uh, previous scenes. Uh, but in terms of the relationship with the horse, I didn't get it, which is probably why I am dead inside. <laughs> I, I think it's such a tricky thing developing this, this connection between a child actor and an animal. And I personally didn't really get Oh, there that. were all those close-ups of the horse's eye, though. I know, <laughs> I know, but for me, a lot of it was scenes of sort of the the central character muttering to himself in the desert which i love uh but for me the way i read this film is that it's not this has nothing to do with the horse um it is about him sort of just using that horse as a as a crux to sort of get himself through this really desperate situation that he is in so for me the way i read it is that he's developing this connection with the horse which isn't there in order for him to get through this horrible horrible situation that he finds himself in I completely agree, and, and that's one of the reasons I, this film really won me yeah. over, because it wasn't that kind of magical connecting with the horse through some kind of symbiotic telepathy. It, it, we, we saw that he was projecting onto the horse, mm. and the horse really wasn't giving much back. Mm. I mean, there were characters earlier in the film saying to him, it's just a horse, it's yeah. just a horse, and even though they were probably more dismissive than, say, we would be about a living animal, I, I kind of could see what they were coming from, which is you can't put this emotional weight onto this creature. It's not going to actually give it back to you. Mm. especially as you're a rookie you, you haven't grown up with horses this is a job you've had for maybe uh, i don't know a week or two yeah. well it's made pretty clear that the one character there who did once love horses who confesses to having once loved horses is 
that love is long gone. It's just a means to a, an end, a fairly desperate way of life. Yeah, and yeah. Um, it's very unromantic. It's quite yeah. anti-romantic. Yeah. The, the, the relationship mm. with the animal. I mean, the film itself is not callous, but it's it's mm. also at the same time, um, it doesn't deliver the, the the obvious narrative we expect mm. with a film about a boy and a horse. Mm. There's one weird slur against Samoan people. That stuck with me after the film. Just out of the, it seems so incongruous with the setting, but the uh, the father early on is was having transgressed in that sort of milieu with yes. uh, a new lady friend mm. and advising his son that he's a just maybe there's a big scary Samoan guy who might make an appearance. Um, and it's just just an odd thing that, that, that this guy is described in, in ways that are very specific and and racially loaded. Maybe that's appropriate for that milieu to set the the scene and go. These this is how people think of Pacific Islanders in the in the Midwest. But I don't know. It just left us a slightly odd taste. I felt that was there to, and maybe it was lazy to establish that this was a character from a, a certain I don't want to say class, but maybe a character of a certain type and yeah, type. A these types yeah. make racist comments. Yeah, I thought it was in a film I otherwise really liked. Maybe that was a, a bit of a, a, a dull note. The, the other, the other bit for me that actually stuck out is a very overt, uh, overt reference to, to waitresses early in the film, yeah, yeah. and then we get a scene later with a waitress. And I was a bit too conscious of. Uh, yeah. I see the connection. Yeah, I felt very mechanical. conscious of that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. It was nice to see mm. those Steve Buscemi and Chloe Savini stepping back and letting um, Charlie Plummer really take the reins of that role because they are big names and I, I thought that, that was really a nice for, um, thing to happen in the film that, that we had these huge names in there but he took charge of it and Steve Buscemi is a beautiful actor yeah, and, he and he I mean he often plays big characters he plays comic relief he still does Adam Sandler films and he, he, he often <laughs> plays he? he's one of those people <laughs> who always pops up and I mean from at least before I stopped watching them. And, um, you know, he plays gangsters. He plays big characters, and he's wonderful. But if you look at, say, films like like Tree's Lounge, which mm. he wrote and directed in the 90s, it's more that kind of role, this sort of, yeah, slightly jaded, broken man. Yeah. Ghost World. World. Oh, Ghost, Ghost World is uh, stunning. That's yeah, probably his best. That's yeah. probably my favourite. Yeah. It's a great character he mm. plays in the film as well because he could easily have just been this one-dimensional uh, sort of jaded character that deals with animals. But the way he connects with Charlie in the film I think is genuinely lovely. Mm. Um, and that's the bit I did warm to. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. So I think we're all saying Lead on Pete's a great one. I mean, mm. Andrew Haig is a stunning filmmaker and I, I think Weekend is still his, the pinnacle of, of mm. his films. I mean, it, it's very hard to compare his films subsequent to that uh, yeah, well, you know what I'm saying. Weekend mm. is really, really good. I don't think it's going to top that in the near future. But um, this is a hell of a film, and, mm. and, and as we've all commented, it never even occurred to me it was made by somebody who wasn't a hundred percent red-blooded American. Mm. It just has that American West. What field. range he has to have mm. 45 years looking Weekend, Greek Pete, which is the mockumentary he mm. did before Weekend, and then this. Mm. There's such different films. I, I find. Lean on Pete is currently on limited release. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. As its title suggests, 
Creed 2 continues the story of emerging heavyweight boxer Adonis Creed, who is played once more by Michael B. Jordan. As established in the first Creed film from 2015, he is the son of heavyweight champion Apollo Creed, a character from the original iconic Rocky series of boxing films. Now, Stephen Capel Jr. takes over the directing duties and Sylvester Stallone is one of the writers and producers, not to mention once more playing the great Rocky Balboa, who now appears in the Creed films in a support role as Adonis's trainer and mentor. Now in this new film Adonis faces an intimidating new challenger in the form of Russian boxer Victor Drago who is the son of Ivan Drago played by Dolph Lundgren who originally appeared in the 1985 film Rocky IV where he had killed Adonis's father Apollo in an exhibition match that Rocky feels some responsibility for. You still with me? (laughs) Creed 2 is therefore a story about old wounds and sons continuing the legacy of their fathers. Many of the cast from the first Creed film also appear, including Tessa Thompson as Bianca Taylor, Adonis' girlfriend. I think we established before the show that, Sally, you're probably the biggest Rocky fan in the room. So what did you make of the new Creed film? I am a Rocky fan. For me, going into this as a Rocky fan, this was such a thrill to see. It was so exciting to see Dolph Lundgren back on screen, to have that old feud from Rocky IV come back through, to have Bridget Nelson up there and um, reprising her role as well. It was very, very exciting as a Rocky fan. I saw this on Thursday night and it was pretty early session like 6pm and it was just me and about five other guys in the cinema and everyone was by themselves and we were all really excited to see it and when the Rocky theme started playing it was just they just gave us a little taste of it, but it was very, very, very exciting. Well, I should say, when we reviewed the original Creed um, on this show, Alexander Heller Nichols and Josh Nelson were both fans of the franchise, and they were almost tearing up talking about the film, where Emma Westwood and I were, were aware of the films, but not necessarily emotionally invested, and we still were impressed by it. But fans of the franchise have been very moved by these it's, films. There's something really euphoric about these mm. these films. I don't, I don't quite know what it is. I'm not a huge fan of boxing films but for some reason I loved the Rocky films I loved Creed um it's I I guess this Creed 2 captures all those really good emotional ups and downs that Creed captured that the Rocky franchise captures and it also has some really interesting um comments I think on masculinity too that come through within the film but yeah I did I didn't love it as much as Creed but I did thoroughly thoroughly enjoy it Needed more horses, do you think? More <laughs> horse whispering. That would have would been good. Yeah, it's um. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think the original Creed was something of a revelation, like yeah. for a Rocky spin-off film to come out when it did and be that good. And it was, you know, so I'm not emotionally invested, but I was still very impressed by it. And and both Creed and this Creed Two film bring people like me up to speed really quickly and easily. Like I've now seen more Creed films than Rocky films. I've only ever seen the original Rocky, and I very quickly got a sense of the importance of all these characters. Um, this new film is incredibly formulaic. You can see every single beat coming off, coming a mile off. But, you know, I think there is, there is skill and talent in that aesthetic of repetition, that being able to take very familiar tropes and, and still make them engaging. And I will say there was one detail at the very end I did not see coming that left me with a lump in my throat throughout the end credits so that they still managed to pull a swifty on me even though I thought I was ahead of the film the whole time. Mm. Even Rocky's turtles from the original Rocky make an appearance in this film <laughs> and they are the same turtles and they're his pets. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yep. I think you're the only one in the room who picked up on that yeah. somehow. <laughs> 
I really enjoyed this too, even though, yeah, I too, Thomas, sensed every beat, every yeah. little narrative switch and twist and turn was all eminently predictable and extremely satisfying for being so. And it, it's, it's, occasion, it, it's, it's odd when, on those occasions, a, a film's predictability seems somehow to work in its favour. And I don't know quite how it is that some films pull that off and others are just immensely disappointing for not delivering any surprises whatsoever. I, I suspect there'll be a lot of people who come to this not having that familiarity with the Rocky films. Uh, Rocky Four was, what, 30-odd years ago? So... Yeah. If you're, let's say, under 30, there's probably not necessarily that much of a chance you've seen these films and know of that Dolph Lundgren, Bridget Nelson, weird celebrity they each had. It's, it's so odd that Scandinavians end up playing Russians. That's already quite <laughs> weird. I suspect their accents are highly rubbish. Um, you know, they, they feel comic bookish, but also... There's, there's a cartoonishness to them that father-son dynamic both the dragos are just a bit unlikely as human beings and to carry the grudge that they do from 30 odd years ago in countless rocky films <laughs> it, it seems an improbable grudge and yet it's it's perfect for this film it's it's extremely satisfying seeing how this plays out because it plays out exactly as it should i don't know why i didn't think this was junk actually because everything in this film <laughs> was exactly as i imagined it would be but I, I did derive immense satisfaction from seeing Dolph Lundgren on screen, and I believe he yeah. and Bridget Nelson <laughs> have never exactly retired from the screen, just that they appear in garbage, hmm. and I never see it. Uh, I, I like Lundgren in this, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting, actually, I was thinking these are such Soviet stereotypes, yeah. like at the height of the hysteria about the Cold War in the 80s, these are the kind of caricatures that us sort of progressive get a bit sniffy about and look down on. But in today's current climate, I'm really good at seeing cliched Russian authoritarian types as the bad guys going up against black Americans beating them down because, you know, in this Trumpy in America, that's now very satisfying. Yeah, well, they're, they're sort of villainous Russians, but then they're also operating within a greater villainy in, in the Russia that they're trying to somehow find themselves uh, a, a, a way into again. It seems like they've been expelled to Ukraine at the start of the film. Yeah, that, yes, you're right, Which actually, is there. really a loaded mm. um, message right now as well because mm. there's conflict uh, there that's been in the background for several years but looks like escalating very much right now. It's just a little... Uh, it's significant, I think, that that when we first meet them, the Drago Junior and Senior, they are in an incredibly miserable Soviet-looking uh, wintry part of Ukraine going through some training drills. But then they want to get back in amongst the elite in, in Russia and somehow endear themselves to the mother that he's lost. There's, there's a lot in common here with Lean on Pete, just no horse. <laughs> Basically the mother. same movie. It's, but this time there are multiple father and son dynamics at play. Mm. And uh, obviously Stallone's Rocky is a surrogate father for uh, Adonis Creed. Um, so many absent parents, a mother, a father. Well, I had a very similar kind of feeling with Creed 2 that I had with Lean on Pete, where Lean on Pete is really nothing about a horse, and Creed 2 is nothing about boxing. It is a melodrama. It does have heart. quite a bit of boxing in it, nonetheless. <laughs> but it does. But I think primarily it is about sort of father-son relationships and a melodrama and, yeah. and sort of men learning to deal with their emotions. And, and the, the actor that played Victor, Florian uh, Montagnu, uh, is a really great actor. Be- I thought he was fantastic. Mm. I was really surprised by how emotive he was. Yeah. Like, he was excellent. He'd be Romanian, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you don't want to get Russians playing Russians now, do you? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I actually think all of the Russians in this film were played by non-Russians. Um, 
Anyway, so yeah, so I think he's a really interesting character where so much of this film is repetitive and predictable but satisfying, mm. but that relationship between him and his father and where that goes, I, for me, that I didn't expect. There's a, there's a few lines dropped at towards the end which... I think you're referencing the, the moments that really blew mm, my mind. That really kind of hit me mm. when I think so. And that is what made this film so satisfying. Mm. Uh, when, I mean, I, I like like you, Cerise and, and Thomas, I know very little about the Rocky franchise uh, going into this film. Um, I knew just enough to keep up. But the way memory works in this film is really interesting. Uh, you know, scenes apparently sort of edit... Um, uh, sort of scenes that were from the cutting room floor from a lot of the earlier films work their way into newsreels and and sort of iPad screens and I think that's really really interesting in a smart way to keep the audience up to to speed with what's actually going on. Um, so yeah, so I th- I really really enjoyed this film and mm. when the boxing did kind of kick into gear, particularly that final fight scene, I was there. I was really excited and I you know, I wanted Creed to win and um, yeah. I really enjoyed it. It's like like the first film. I thought the best boxing fights were the middle sections. And and this one, I mean, the first one had that beautiful long take. Where this one, there's a lot of point of view camera work from uh, Creed's perspective. And the sound, particularly as Drago is, you know, punching him in the face. And mm. it looks like those punches are hitting you in the audience. And the sound is really squelchy and full on. And mm. I found that really visceral and exciting. I yeah. mean, it was, it, was, it was confronting and you really got a sense of... These are, are damaging blows. Like this is not cartoonish. They crushing. Yeah, hurt. I felt yeah. some of those in the rib cage. I, I felt yeah. those ones especially made me wince. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there was some crunchy. They were stepping on macaroni in the in the sound booth <laughs> for yeah. those days. Some watermelon work there as well. I think. <laughs> yeah. The the training montage is fantastic. I knew that was coming, and I was Love satisfied. It was, a, it was it was a good training montage <laughs> though. And also Tessa Thompson is yes. incredible. She does a lot with this role. Her character was really well written and whoever is dressing her had a lot of fun. Oh, she looks stunning in this. Every, her like, turban's just wonderful. Every yeah. scene she was in, her costume was on point. Can I tell you though, the, the one big issue I had with this film, and I think it's unfair to bring it up with to isolate this film because it happens an awful lot in Hollywood cinema, but her and Adonis are very much a partnership. We discover quite early her music career is really taking off and mm. she's told, you know, she's got a, a record deal and then suddenly that's all gone yeah. and she's putting everything on hold to play house while he pursues this fairly silly grudge as well. Mm. I mean, the film has its cake and eats it a bit too. It sort of establishes that fo- got, pursuing this fight is ridiculous but it has to happen for the narrative as well. And, and it lays it down a bit with the subplot with about hearing impairment. Which I remember being something in the first Creed her, her film hearings too. going. So yeah. she's got limited time mm. to pursue mm. her music career, mm. and that just gets put on hold without anybody commenting on it. And I think, look, I think we're speaking about much bigger social problems, though, with mm. that idea of the guy's career comes first, yeah, and, the, yeah. and the woman has to put everything on hold. And mm. and I guess she I does know. land a pretty cushy gig in Russia. <laughs> oh yeah, she, she got to perform there. Yeah. She does. Well, yeah, well, she, she, she gets to perform for his yeah. career. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But you know, I, I, I'm singling. This just happened. I'm thinking about this a lot at the moment. Yeah. Um, and this happened to be the film I saw when I was thinking about it. But it's it's something that appears a lot in the cinema. And yeah, I'd like us all to get over that. Yeah. Mm. But um, that's a terrible note to end on. This is the, Creed Two is otherwise a pretty exciting film. Yeah. Yeah. We all liked it. Yeah, so yeah. Hardcore fans and, and casual fans alike. Yeah, hugely enjoyable. Yeah, and mm. it, it's screening absolutely everywhere, so I'm sure you'll be able to see it sometime between now and Christmas. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. 3 Triple 
Sorry to Bother You is the debut film for writer-director Boots Riley, who is best known for his career as a rapper, predominantly with The Coop. It's a social satire that is either set in the not-too-distant future or a slightly absurdist variation on current day. It stars Lakeith Stanfield as Cassius Green, or simply Cash, who has just landed a job at a telemarketing company. When Cash discovers a way to start achieving considerable success, he becomes torn between reaping at the rewards of working for the somewhat shady company and his loyalty to his co-workers who want to unionise. Now, evoking a range of influences from the sketch comedy of Keenan Ivory Waynes, Eddie Murphy and Dave Chappelle, uh, to films such as Brazil and Idiocracy, Sorry to Bother You it takes on a range of issues relating to race, class and capitalism with humour and increasingly bizarre plot twists. The supporting cast includes Tessa Thompson, once more in the girlfriend role, as well as Jermaine Fowler, Omari Hardwick, Terry Crews, Danny Glover, Stephen Ewan and Army Hammer. David Cross and Patton Oswald also lend their voices to the film. I don't know if we should spoil how they do that, but it's a very nice <laughs> touch. <laughs> this film has been generating a lot of excitement. Did we all enjoy the weirdness of Sorry to Bother You? I'm seeing lots of nods. You have to put words behind the nods. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I did enjoy it. Yeah. It's bonkers. Yep. It is completely nuts. Um I really enjoyed all of the, the twists and where it goes. I loved all the cameos. Uh, Army Hammer when he comes in, Terry Crews. Uh, I missed out on uh, David Cross, Patton Oswalt, Lily James and Forrest Whitaker and Rosario Dawson are also in this film. You heard David As Cross. Yeah, the first two you heard As voices. throughout the film. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of voices only. Yeah, and so I've, I've missed yes. all of them. Um <laughs> Once again, Tessa Thompson uh, dressed really, really well. She has this one T-shirt that says, the future is female ejaculation, which is great. (laughs) And she has great earrings on throughout the entire film. Uh, I mean, it's a a really common trope uh, for female characters when they're quirky. They've got multicoloured hair. Uh, And so there was a few sort of of common tropes with her that I thought were a little lazy. Um, But... The big issue I have this with this film is that it's not funny. Like, I didn't laugh. The only time I laughed was when there was the nod to Michelle Gondry and it said Michelle Dongry. That was the <laughs> only time I laughed in this film. And it was a good laugh, uh, but yeah, I just didn't find it funny. Like, it was just maybe like a weaker, epi- a weaker episode of a skit show that just the joke kept on going. I mean, there's one scene when he gets he's at the protest and he gets hit in the head with a coca can and then that becomes this joke throughout the film that just becomes so laboured and... I mean, that's sort of the only thing. Like, I love the political critique. I love the twist on genre. It's quirky as hell. But I just did not find it funny. Before others defend this, I'm going to jump in and say I'm kind of with Stuart on this. Mm. I I did that thing where I wasn't lolling, but I was often breathing air through my nose quite heavily because I appreciated (laughs) the joke and the weirdness. What does that sound like? It's sort of a... It's a bit horsey. It wasn't there. Yeah, well, I was feeling horse by the end of this film. Um, um, Yes, I just got distracted with my own terrible pun. Um, It does feel like a first time filmmaker, and I like the audacity. A very good first time filmmaker. I I like the audacity of this. I love the mashup of ideas. I do wonder if the outpouring of critical praise is part of that tradition we're currently in of people getting a bit too excited about the message of a film rather yep. than the overall quality of the film. Mm. 
I, I, you know, I don't, I don't mean to be patronising, but I think it's a good first-time film mm. that I really enjoyed. I'm glad it's out there in the world. Can't wait to see what he does next. Mm. Mm. I, th- I really loved watching this movie unfold. I had a really, really good time watching it. It definitely wasn't a laugh-out-loud film, but it was funny and really heavily influenced by Michel Gondry. It reminded me of the first time I think I saw The Science of Sleep. I can kind of... There was lots of, I don't know, parallels for, um, for that with this for me. But... um. One thing that I found really interesting, because I've noticed a lot of people saying, this is really a movie of now, it's a movie of this time, you know, with Trump in power. and But Boots Riley wrote this film when Obama was in power and has really made minor changes. So we could kind of, you know, put this film at any time and we're still... There's a big focus in this film on labour and union and, um, yeah, it could be within any time. It's not centric to Trump being in power right now, as I think a lot of people are likening it to. But... I did enjoy it. It actually it does feel mm. more like Obama politics are being yeah. critiqued here than Trump, actually, because mm. it's very much focused on black Americans and how they respond to fellow black American- yeah. Americans. I didn't it, get a Trumpian feel from this at all. Yes, no, I've, I've noticed a lot of people saying it's very, uh, very Trump film, but it's mm. like completely not written while Trump was in power. Yeah, there's mm. definitely a lot here of uh, Afro-Americans all doing right by their fellow Afro-Americans, mm. African-Americans. So it's, um, I actually struggled to find this funny as well. I... I it, it held me because I was going, I have no idea where this is going, not mm. least because just at intervals it would introduce something utterly absurd, um, reaching dizzying heights of absurdity at one point. But still, somehow it didn't... It, there's something off about the timing of the gags and the delivery. It just didn't somehow translate to lols. Oh. I, um, I, 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 don't, I chuckled once or twice, but I didn't, I, somehow it just didn't hit home. Mm. Um, this is a comedy, right? I mean, it is. It's it's mm. an absurdist comedy, and actually, a lot of absurdist say theatre. I've never found especially funny. I just go, oh yeah, yeah, life's bleak and futile. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> but this isn't what this is aiming at either. This isn't aiming. It isn't a broadside of, uh, against the futility of life. This is there is a message in here that change can come, um, though the what we're up against is considerable and more bizarre and all encompassing than we might ever possibly imagine. Not perhaps quite as bizarre as it is in this film, though. Also, possibly, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I got some very mixed feelings about this film, and, and a little bit of mixed messaging from it. I'd mm. have to say. I thought the characters in it were all really well rounded, and I, I did like that there wasn't anyone that was inherently good, or there wasn't anyone that was super, super evil. They all sort of had, you know, different complex sides to them, which was one really strong point of this film. I thought. And I thought, look, at the, I mean, I, I always appreciate a good critique of corporate culture and the very overt parallels they draw between corporate culture and a, sort of a new slavery. Um, um, but there's nothing particularly subtle about this film. And, but, and there's also the jokes about white culture and how sort of having a white persona will make you more privileged and get you further in, in, in the world. And I, you know, there's a particular gag, which maybe they do one too many times. It sort of wears it out. But I think it's a very effective joke as well, and I'm a huge fan of black culture mocking white culture because it's mm. you know it's it's not the same as doing it the other way. I'm probably preaching to the converted making that statement, but I think it's a really important thing for especially those of us who are white to realise that we are not the norm. We're just another identifiable group who've sort of been calling the shots in a major way for a very long time and still continue to do so. So sort of having our culture ridiculed and thrown back at us in a way which is quite endearing and fun, the way it's done in this film, I found really refreshing and, and quite enjoyable. Not in a self-flagellating, you know, white liberal guilt way either, just in a way <laughs> of recognising it's really clever. You know, the same way when Dave Chappelle and 
Eddie Murphy do their parodies of white people, I find it absolutely hilarious because they, they, they capture truth. Mm, but when, I mean, when sort of white voices are parodied in this film I mean I was thinking of David uh, Chappelle and uh, Eddie Murphy and I was like they were doing those jokes ages ago and that's the thing yeah Mm. and kind of doing it better too yeah Yeah. I mean there's a I mean it's just not a spoiler because this is featured in the trailer but he puts on a white voice as a telemarketer Mm. and so it's obviously dubbed um, in the film but the way he's kind of lip syncing to the to the the white voice actor it's just not done well Um, so for me I mean I loved what they were saying but I just in terms of the quality of the film. I just, it's not done well. Well, that's interesting. I think mm. the four of us have just dissented between what I'm hearing everywhere else. Yeah, because I was coming into this tonight thinking I was going to be the only person going, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel quite lukewarm about it. Yeah, you're not right. alone. Mm. You're not dead inside and you're not alone. <laughs> Thank you. You're all right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to bother you. We, we did like it, but it's not the second coming. Yeah. Look, we're going to wrap things up. Um, Lean on Pete is on limited release through Transmission Films. Creed 2 is on general release through Roadshow Films. And Sorry to Bother You is screening at Cinema Nova through Universal Pictures. You have been listening to Thomas Cordwell, Cerise Howard, Stuart Richards and Sally Christie. The podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard. Now, next week's show will be the final Plato's K for 2018. So Cerise, Stuart and Sally will be back along with Emma Westwood, to discuss their favourite films of the year. Uh, I won't be on that show, but the following week I'll be in the 7pm Monday night slot doing a special one-off presentation. I I did an interview some time ago with film composer and occasional actor Ruchi Sakamoto, and I'll be playing that for you uh, in two Mondays' time. Uh, Now, do keep on listening to Triple R. In about seven minutes, Jason Moore will be up next in local and or general. But before I sign off and my voice cracks beyond belief, I'm going to make an announcement. So as long-time listeners of Players Cave may know, I used to be a regular part of this team and indeed one of the founders of the show back in April 2011 when it began as a Triple R podcast. Now, about this time last year, I had... um I announced I had new work commitments that required me to take an absence of leave from the show throughout this year. And as it's turned out, what I thought initially would be just a 12-month contract with my job has become an ongoing position, which is wonderful, but it does mean I now have to officially step down from Plato's Cave. It's a decision I've made with a heavy heart, and God knows I've taken my time arriving at it and annoyed everybody who has been involved in that process. But it's the right decision, I think. As I mentioned, I will be back on Triple R in just two weeks to present a special, and I hope I do still get to pop up here and there doing similar things where possible so I won't vanish from the Triple R airwaves altogether. I do want to thank a bunch of people, and of course doing this runs the risk of me forgetting somebody, but here goes. Thank you to um, ex-program manager Mick James for originally greenlighting Plato's Cave, ex-program manager Chris Hatzis for transitioning the show into a permanent part of the Triple R schedule, and a huge thank you to current program manager Beck Hornsby for her ongoing support, encouragement and patience while I figured out what I was doing. Um, and I know there are others, but in terms of other Triple R staff, volunteers and broadcasters, past and present, I want to mention in no particular order Michelle Bennett, Jacinta Parsons, Phoebe Square, Dave Houchin, Elizabeth McCarthy, Lauren Clark, Alicia Sometimes, Marion Blythe, Christos Cholkis, Hayley Inch, Carl Chapman and Brian Driscoll as all people who have in some way gone out of their way to support the show and specifically have shown me kindness and encouragement. 
Thank you to Stuart Richards, Sally Christie, Lisa Kovacevic and all the other guest presenters who have helped out this year and others. Thank you to Alexandra Helen Nicholas who was part of the team for a number of years and a big thank you to current hosts Cerise Howard and Emma Westwood who came on board uh, and have been a joy to broadcast with. In fact, everybody I've just mentioned uh, have been an honour and a joy to broadcast with. Thank you also to Faith Everard who for the past two years has been working miracles behind the scenes. Um, a final huge thank you to my original co-hosts Tara Judah and Josh Nelson who started all this with me a number of years ago. The, the three of us wanted to do a show that was informed, accessible and fun. A step above the bland consumer recommendation style of film reviewing, of describing the plot and sharing personal feelings, but without the dryness, obscurity and irrelevance of so much academic style criticism. We wanted to share our passion and knowledge about cinema in a way that was entertaining and of interest to people who weren't necessarily hardcore cinephiles, but nevertheless curious about film and discussing film. And I do think that every now and then we did it. I'm really proud of this show, but my work here is done. It is time to ride off into the sunset. But first, with great reluctance, I'm going to press a button and play something that Faith has put together. Consider it a badge of honour. I mean, I've I've butchered some amazingly well-respected people's names. Say it. Lisa Kovacevic. Well, oh, he's so close. That was really close. Is it the issue? Itch. No, okay. Lisa Kovacevic. Yes. Kira Kurosawa. Hirokazu Kurieda. Am I pronouncing that right? Bong John Ho, Jung Boing, uh, Bong Gil. Sorry, it's just hmm. he's on the trampoline. Boing. Oh, don't, <laughs> don't. That's bad. Hercule Pirol, Ava Duvernay. I listened back to you guys last week, and you butchered a bunch of foreign names. So it's not just me. Bertrand Bonolo. No, I'm not saying that right, am I? Bonello. Paolo Viazzi. Demi Debbie Reynolds. Emanuela Riva. Hey, how's my syntax going tonight? I feel like it's a little Shatner-esque. Yeah. <laughs> my name is Lisa Kovacevic and I've temporarily taken the reins from Tho- Thomas Kaldowali. Kaldowali. <laughs> is that it? Have I got it right? That's close. That's close. I, I'm, I'm pretty easygoing. I know it's difficult to pronounce names, it so is. I'm very forgiving. <laughs> Particularly very foreign ones like that. Um... I so deserve that and, and a lot more. Michaela Ramazzotti. Julia de Cunel. Uh, what's his name? Johnny Depp. Look, it's, it's an endearing quirk I have. <laughs> Faith, I withdraw my thank you. That was horrible. <laughs> I feel like I've been assassinated. That was brilliant. Somebody once subscribed to my bad pronunciations. So, really? Yeah, I'm quite proud of that. Well, uh, yeah, you know, listeners might think that I created that out of spite, but I'm, I assure you it was n- nothing more than an affectionate tribute to someone who's been on the air for so long. So, yeah, and, you know, just because this is, you know, your last show, I did want to say, you know, thank you so much for bringing me on a couple of years ago. Um, and like it's been awesome being a part of this show I've been inspired by uh, both your criticism and your radio good sense um, and it has sort of inspired me to go and do my own criticism and radio stuff and thank you for your contrib- contributions to radio and film criticism that extend far beyond the two years that I've known you but good luck for all future endeavours Thank you Faith Yeah.
Thank you, everybody. No, thank you, Thomas. You roped me into getting into this cave with you some years ago. I forget just how many. I was quite, a, quite aggressively wanting you to be part of the team, Cerise. Yes. I don't remember the aggression so much, <laughs> just the kickbacks, and they were very welcome. So thank you, and thank you uh, to Josh and uh, Tara, who were the other co-hosts at the time. It's mm-hmm. been an honour and privilege, and you'll be back, and we'll do some radio. We'll be in the trenches again yet, I would hope. I will. Yeah. But- Yeah, Thomas, thank you so much for being instrumental in creating Plato's Cave. I I do genuinely feel honoured to be a part of it. And like Faith was saying, I come away from here each week feeling inspired by just listening to everybody else that I share this space with, including yourself. And yeah, it's a big privilege and I'm very, very grateful to be a part of it. So thank you very much. Yeah, it's an absolute honour to be on the show uh, and to, I guess, be part of this, uh, this thing that has been going on here for so long. And it is quietly terrifying to know that we are taking the reins and we hope we do you proud. We hope we're doing you proud. Uh, and it is, yeah, it is an absolute privilege to, I guess, um, yeah, to sort of get to share the airwaves with you. And thank you for starting up this show. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you all of you. They are lovely words. It means a lot. It's very humbling. And I have listened to every single show I haven't been on and I've enjoyed it. So, so bravo. Long live Plato's Cave. Um, right, I'm going to find that horse now. Long live Thomas Caldwell. <laughs> <laughs> My filmmakers now get the respect they deserve. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.